You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Well, greetings, friends. In the hope of the resurrection of Christ, He is risen. Uh, it is summertime in the Carolinas just now. We have had the uh, impressive heat and humidity to prove it. Uh, and I have very much been in a summer schedule mode. I've traveled uh, recently, uh, first to Wheaton College, uh, there outside of Chicago, for uh, a deacon summit uh, put on by my denomination. And then I spent, uh, shortly thereafter, about a week uh, just outside of Philadelphia at the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, in just a couple of weeks from now, I will be taking a few weeks of summer vacation. And by the way, the first uh, week of that will be the build-up to the first marriage among my offspring, uh, my son Duncan, uh, getting married to the lovely Miss Anne-Marie Lawing on July 16. So it's been a busy uh, few weeks and uh, beginning of the summer for me. And uh, this will not only make the summer of 2022 memorable, in many ways, but it also goes a long way towards explaining why my podcast this summer has been devoted to what we used to call uh, reruns, uh, that is to say, uh, selected sermons from the pulpit of resurrection that I have wanted to share again. Uh, most recently, I have shared the short series that I preached back in 2010 on the Great Commission. Today, I want to introduce another short sermon series. This one preached the beginning of the year 2008, and I called it A Kingdom Conscious Life. Uh, Again, this was in that season of my ministry when I was uh, full of reflection on the significance of the kingdom of God in the scripture and uh, how everything about our lives is to be devoted to advancing that kingdom. Uh, Or as uh, Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 6, Uh, Everything in our lives is to be about seeking first the kingdom of God. I preached four sermons on what a kingdom consciousness uh, would look like in everyday ways. I preached on the kingdom in your family, then on the kingdom in your calling, then the kingdom and your church, and finally the kingdom and your world. Now, uh, in each of those messages, I advance this thesis Uh, that a kingdom-conscious life sees various good and noble pursuits in the Christian life not as ends in themselves, uh, but actually as means to a greater end, that of advancing Christ's kingdom. Now, I think at various places this perspective could be somewhat uh, unsettling, uh, since it could come across as a threat to our customary sense of the priorities of the Christian life. Uh, But folks, I think it also comes with the assurance uh, from Christ himself that as we make his reign our priority, the other things in life that we need and that we can often be tempted to be anxious about uh, will, as he put it, be added to us. That's what he says as he goes on to speak in Matthew chapter 6. You keep your focus on my kingdom, it's as if Jesus says, And I'll make sure that you have the necessities of life to seek that kingdom. So, uh, in this first message for today, the kingdom and your family, 
I'm calling for a kingdom mentality towards the most precious resources that we have of marriage and of home and of children. I'm going to argue that none of these are merely for our personal edification and enjoyment. Brothers and sisters, they're each to be stewarded in such a way as to be the most useful to Christ in his enlarging of his own rule in the hearts and lives of sinners. Indeed, the people and things most precious to us are among the things we're called to put uh, into the service of the King. I trust you will profit from this message and this short series. They have been a blessing to me, um, even as I have revisited them of late. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke in the ninth chapter this morning, Luke chapter 9. Here is an example of our Lord in a very provocative, radical sounding way, issuing a call to priorities. And it's very clear that he places the kingdom and its pursuit as a priority even over home and family. I begin reading at verse 57 of Luke chapter 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. At this time last year, I was beginning a sabbatical. It was a very fruitful time of study. I have assured you of that and thanked you for that already. It was an opportunity for me to pursue studies that I had begun, to be sure, but really required some uninterrupted time in the Scriptures. And when I returned, among other things, you heard a great deal from me about the kingdom of God. We began a survey of the Old Testament in which we saw God's goal of restoring His kingdom on earth coming about. And more recently, we began the study of Matthew, which has as its theme the coming of the kingdom. This theme of the kingdom is so broad. It's a whole Bible theme. It requires one to step back from the Scriptures in order to see it in its fullness, in its wide-angle lens, as it were. We've spent some time in the last year simply trying to see the big picture of the coming of God's kingdom. How creation is the laying of a foundation for a kingdom. How the fall of man was, in a very real sense, the fall of a kingdom. And how the plan of redemption that has commenced in the earth is a plan by which God is resolved to restore His kingdom on earth. That's why the Old Testament is so much about kings and kingdoms and how or why the New Testament comes to us announcing 
the gospel of the kingdom. This kingdom is God's determination to make the earth once again as holy a place as heaven is. Jesus says, you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, here at the beginning of this year, I want to pause and reflect with you on a very practical question. We could all agree, I trust, that it's good to know what God is up to in the world, what He was doing long before we were here, and what He will likely be doing long after we're gone. It's good to know, but here's the question, does it really make a difference in the way we live? Does the knowledge that our very existence is for the purpose of advancing God's work of the kingdom on the earth make a difference in how we live? I would assert to you that it does. That living with what I'm calling a kingdom consciousness does make a difference. It's a difference you can see in a Christian. Some Christians live very much with a kingdom consciousness. Other Christians live with very little of it. And it makes a real and pervasive difference. Now, early last year, when we were looking together at our Lord's words in Matthew 6, where He says to His disciples, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. I said something then that I want to elaborate on in the opening weeks of this year. I said to you there, by way of something of a forecast of what this means practically, I said this, things that we are inclined to see as ends in themselves will, with a kingdom consciousness, become means to a greater end. I gave you some examples of that. I spoke of marriage, of children, our homes, our even our personal spiritual disciplines. These will not be in our minds ends and of themselves. They'll be means to a greater end. And I'm coming back to that now. I want to unpack that a bit with you in these opening weeks of the year 2008. I'll do it under four headings. The kingdom and your family, the kingdom and your calling, the kingdom and your church, and the kingdom and your world, and I hasten to say these are but down payments of what I consider to be my responsibility to continue to unpack in the coming years as I seek to lead us in faithfulness to the Scriptures. What does the kingdom of God have to do practically with my family? That's the question before us this morning. Our families are near and dear to us, especially in this congregation. But they are not, I would put to you this morning, ends to themselves. Our families are means to the end of the coming of God's kingdom on earth. What I want to say this morning, I trust, will eventually be thrilling to you. But I would warn you, it may be, not unlike Jesus' words that I read at the outset, they may be on the way to getting thrilled, unsettling. Let's break it down into three parts. 
the kingdom and your family, we can speak first of marriage, then of children, and then of our homes. Your marriage, brothers and sisters, if you are married this morning, is a means to the coming of the kingdom. Why has God given to us this institution of marriage? Well, is it to make us happy? I hope you say yes. I hope you are quick to say yes. And it's proven to be so for me. God did, after all, say it's not good for man to be alone. And so we have a gift from Him for our pleasure in marriage, in our spouses. And this is true. But if this were our only answer, we'd be guilty of making marriage an end of itself. And God has not given marriage to us merely for our personal fulfillment. He's given it to us for uh, the advancement of the kingdom. Genesis chapter 1, we've seen this before. In chapter 2, actually, we get the first hint of this where, G, where the Lord gives a name to the wife that flags for us that he has a very specific purpose for marriage. He calls the wife a helper. In chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord says, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, in calling the wife the helper, he is speaking of the fact that God has made man with a task. And as we've seen before, the woman is made in order to help him with that task. So, it's really not just a reference to the function of the wife that's in view here, but both the man and the wife have been created for a task. And marriage is a way to better enable them to fulfill that task. What is the task? Well, we've seen that before in chapter 1, where God says in verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, to the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus far, we review. These things are familiar. And perhaps you're very willing for the purposes this morning to say, I'm aware that marriage, like everything, exists for a higher end, the glory of God. And in specific terms, in light of Genesis chapter 1, it is in existence for the end of filling the earth with the glory of God by multiplying and having dominion on the earth. We've spoken of this before. Perhaps you're ready to grant to me this morning that you see your wife or your husband as not just a companion there to give you the joys of one of the highest forms of friendship, but you also look at him or her as a comrade in the service of the king. But let's reflect for a moment on some of the practical implications of this. I have two in mind. If marriage is ultimately a means to the advancement of God's kingdom, then we have to be prepared, brothers and sisters, for when kingdom work comes at the expense of companionship. Marital companionship. Those of you who are married know immediately ways in which this has already happened. There's a conflict that you've already seen between certain kinds of kingdom work and the companionship you might otherwise enjoy as husband and wife. The most obvious is those of you who are married and have children. We have a couple of new dads in the congregation, not to unduly single out anyone, but you know who you are. Those of you who are old dads can still remember, perhaps, the sense that you had 
when that firstborn came into your home and all of a sudden your wife's undivided attention was no longer undivided. She's now, in a very preoccupying way, concerned for this new addition to the home. And you may have had some adjusting to do. The companionship you'd enjoyed thus far in your marriage is now under some kind of a threat. Though you've acknowledged quickly that there is legitimacy to that threat. This happens, as we've known well, on the other side, as husband and wife face the demands of a man's vocation on their marriage. And how often there seems to be a flat-out tension, a threat to companionship by the man's work in the world. And those wives sitting here have known what it was to recognize that God called Adam to a vocation, a task. And that means that marriage is in part to promote that end. If you don't have a sense of kingdom consciousness, brothers and sisters, you won't have a category for that very real phenomenon of what happens in marriage. Marriage is not just for companionship. It is for a higher end, the advance in the kingdom that happens through children and all the investing that goes into them. It happens in vocation and all that must be poured into that. It happens in many other ways that I see at work in this congregation to my delight. As men must leave their homes in order to volunteer to do work downtown, for example, at the rescue mission or the prison ministry. As women must separate from their husbands and uh, children in order to mentor younger women in the faith. These are real threats to what we might otherwise want in terms of fellowship within our marriages. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. This is not the first or the last word on marriage. This is a balancing word to you this morning. Do we have to say at times no to our children? No to work? No even to ministry in order to cultivate a close relationship with our spouse? Yes. And I in no way would drain a drop of your ambition for romantic intimacy in marriage. You know me better than that. But there is balance that we're to strive for. Our books stand out here in the foyer is loaded with books on marriage and how your relationship of marriage can be made better. I think I've just recently preached a series to that effect as well. But with all this focus on keeping good relationship in marriage, we can forget that your love relationship, your love relationship with your spouse is not an end itself. It exists for the king. You see, we can begin to think that God made marriage, like a lot of other things in our lives, primarily for personal fulfillment. We will not have a category for the kind of sacrifice the king requires of us, even measured in terms of our relationships with our spouses, in terms of time and energy. And ironically, this can actually lead to problems in the marriage relationship. One way to wreck a marriage is to view it exclusively in terms of mutual fulfillment. Luke chapter 14, Jesus makes one of his many outrageous comments, and I've abridged it here for effect. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his wife, 
he cannot be my disciple. Now, in the original, the full text, he includes fathers, mothers, children, brothers, sisters, and one's own life. And ladies, I do believe that by extension, he would include husbands. Anyone comes to me and does not hate his husband, he cannot be my disciple. Why is he speaking that way to us? Is he down on family, hearth and home? Why does Jesus speak this way in more than one place? You know him well enough. You know he's not speaking absolutely here. He's speaking relatively here. That is to say, he's demanding loyalty to himself. And he's demanding a loyalty to himself as only a king can demand loyalty. And he's saying this takes priority over every other relationship. And indeed, every other relationship is only a means to the end of expressing your loyalty to me. And so, the kingdom and your family, brothers and sisters, our marriages exist to promote the coming of the kingdom. They're not an end in themselves. A good marriage is ultimately one that is effective in bringing about, in a man and a woman, greater service to the king. A second implication about marriage may seem contradictory at first, but it actually flows from the first. And that is this. If marriage is ultimately a means to the advancement of God's kingdom, we must be prepared to forego the pursuit of marriage. For the sake of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says something else that's hard to understand. You might turn there with me. Matthew chapter 19 is in a context where he's closed a door on divorce almost entirely, it would seem. And his disciples are befuddled by it. I'm not as much concerned with that context as with what he goes on to say in verse 12. Matthew 19 Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, I don't know about the others in here, but that has struck me as the get off the hook clause, that last one. Well, I can't receive that, so I'll just keep reading. There's more in chapter 19. Maybe others of you have thought something similar. It's really not that hard to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying something in this passage very similar to what Paul emphasizes as a single man devoted to the pursuit, the advancement of the kingdom. He's talking about, in that third category, the eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs. He's speaking there, not literally, but he's speaking of those who resolve to forego the pleasure and comforts of marriage. And they do so, as Jesus puts it, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For some men and some women, the greatest way to service in the kingdom is through foregoing marriage. And that makes sense if marriage itself is merely a means to the end of promoting the kingdom of God. It makes sense that if marriage is a means to that, then there might also be circumstances where the absence of marriage would also be a means of promoting the kingdom. Now, that's something perhaps all of us are hypothetically willing to embrace. But 
young people, you are unmarried. Are you actually open-minded about this question? Are you actually open to the possibility that it might be better for you not to marry in order to serve the king? Never mind you young people, you mamas and daddies who are expecting your young people to give you grandkids for Christmas. Are you open to that possibility that God would call your son or daughter for the sake of the kingdom to forego this blessed institution of marriage? Recently, some of the men have been studying In the history of the church, the great age of missionary expansion, whether you knew it or not, the 19th century represents the greatest age of the explosive work of missions in planet Earth. And that was done through names of many that I could mention that would be familiar to you. Heroes of the missionary movement. We reflected as men how many of them were men who left behind, often for years at a time, wives and children. Now, perhaps my first point ought to at least give us pause before we sit in judgment over them. It's common for us to think, oh, that was utterly irresponsible to their calling as husbands and fathers. Perhaps at least we ought to be given pause by remembering marriage is not an end in itself, neither is the home. But... Perhaps their example also ought to prod us to consider more whether those in our generation, more in our generation, should consider God's call to forego marriage, to be missionaries in often dangerous fields. We need, I dare say, more Lois Ohms. The missionary who just recently retired after spending her whole life as a single woman ministering in a medical way in Africa primarily. Or those of you who have been in the OPC longer, a great Reed Kirk who did something very similar. Over New Year's, I had opportunity to meet someone who may be our next medical missionary to Uganda. He's a young man just out of his medical training, finishing his residency He's a single man, a very pleasant fellow with a charming smile. And I can guess what some of you, maybe particularly some of the women here, might think seeing that man, young man, going off to Uganda. Where will he find a wife? You know the answer to that? He may not. I'm sure he's weighed that. God calls men and women into marriage, ultimately for the sake of the kingdom. Then it follows he can also call men and women to a life without marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Marriage is a means to the coming of the kingdom. And I've dwelt with you on a couple of implications of that statement. Let's move on to speak of our children now. Our children are a means to the coming of the kingdom Children, I may sound now like I'm just speaking about you, but really, I'm also speaking to you. Listen carefully as I ask a question of your parents. 
Parents, why have, why has God given you those handsome children sitting with you in your pew? If your first response is to say, it's a token of his unmerited favor to me, you are speaking truly. Psalm 127 speaks that way, doesn't it? Psalm 127 speaks of our children as our heritage from the Lord and speaks of them as the fruit of the womb, which is a reward. And you're right to think that the children that you have with you are God's blessings upon you. But you can't stop there. Your children are not merely gifts for you to open and to enjoy. Psalm 127, I just refer to also famously, refers to your children as weapons of God in his kingdom. Verse 4 of Psalm 127, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now, what's the function of an arrow? It's a very utilitarian function. They're for use in battle. They're weapons to be used in the defense or the advance of a kingdom. God gives us children, as one of our elders likes to say, as part of the takeover plan. That's why he's given us children. Ultimately, you're raising up servants, soldiers of the king. So, you children gather around you. You laugh at their shenanigans. If they're older, you beam with pride at what they're accomplishing as it should be. But that is not their primary purpose in your life. They're given to you to be prepared by you to take a part in advancing God's kingdom. You say, I I know that, Pastor. I'm very aware of that. But let's meditate on a few of the practical implications of that. I have three in mind. One of them is that that transforms your whole view of parenting into one that is fundamentally that of stewardship. Parenting is an act of stewardship. Every parent has a tendency to see their children as existing for themselves, for us as parents. But in fact, the opposite is true. God gives us authority, and as we exercise it in our home, yes, there is the appearance of things that our children do to serve us that would indicate that they are existing for us, but most fundamentally... Our children do not exist for us. We exist for them. We are their stewards. We are those that God has called to equip them for a time. And then to hand over to him for use, however he would be pleased to use them. Have you mothers been inspired by the example of a Susanna Wesley? Truly, she is a mother in all of Israel among the great mothers because her sons, Charles and particularly John, did as much as many men to transform the face of the earth with the gospel. It's a staggering testimony to her parenting what John Wesley in particular has done in the course of his ministry But you don't have to be the mother of John Wesley to have the same perspective as a Susanna. You undergo the trials of parenting, moms. The many times when you feel like the lowliest of servants. 
What I'm saying to you is, you are a servant. But you're a servant of the King. That's your whole role as a parent. You're not a mommy. You're a nanny. You're not a father. You're a surrogate father. You're raising up children for the Father King who has a purpose for them in advancing His kingdom. Parenting is a matter of stewardship. Children are ultimately the means of advancing God's kingdom. That means also that we have very practical objectives in their training. We are, if we are parents of any achievement, any achievement at all, we are parents who face the temptation of making our children trophies of achievement. If we have intellectual achievements, artistic achievements, athletic achievements, we want our children to have the same kinds of achievements. I'm sure you're aware of that danger. Brothers and sisters, we have to continue to remind ourselves if we're to be parents with the kingdom consciousness, we're not in pottery class as we shape the lives and characters of our children. Pottery class, that just brings out beautiful things. Things that are admirable. Things that are impressive to look at. Things that are beautiful. We're not in pottery class. We're in a munitions factory as parents. You want sharp kids? You should. Sharp as arrows are sharp. Whatever our perspective and convictions about educational models for our children. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be agreed on this. We're aiming at children who will be formidable opponents to Christ's enemies. That's the very practical objective we have as parents. That means fathers and mothers... You're to be asking yourself this question, not what is the direction I can steer my child that will be most gratifying to me as I envision what I want him or her to be when he grows up. It means you're to steer your children in a way that is most influential for the good of the kingdom. And that means one other thing practically. It means that we've got to have a very sacrificial outlook on their future. The future of our children. Arrows are meant to be lost for a good cause. It was the year for a Mississippi Christmas for the Trice family. We went to the in-laws' house and... Patriarch and Matriarch Oswald had all of their clan gathered around them. None of them were missing. Papa and Yaya sat as their children and their children's children all assembled and exchanged gifts. And some of you tasted that same pleasure in recent weeks. Others of you have got it all planned out. That's what it's going to be like for you when you get to be a papa, a grandma, your kids are all going to marry. They're going to marry right here in this church. They're going to settle in this city. And they'll always be home for Christmas. And you'll enjoy to the full the multi-generational blessings of the covenant until Jesus calls you home. And I'm giving you this morning a reality check that may not be in the King's orders. Your son may not be home, not just for Christmas, he may not be home, but every four or five years when he's on furlough 
from his work in India. Your daughter may not be able to fly home even for the death of your aunt or uncle because it's simply impossible to leave Malawi, Africa, where she's teaching. You may not have those grandchildren you're counting on because, as I said earlier, you may have a son or a daughter who says, I want to serve in a place that's so dangerous that I would follow our Lord's teaching in this area. And I would choose not to marry in order to serve the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying again is not the first or the last word on parenting. It's a balancing word. As precious as our relationship with our children is, their relationship to us, it is a relationship that exists to serve the needs of the kingdom and the will of the king. God may call you to sacrifice your son for him. He may call you to sacrifice your daughter. At least the measure of enjoyment that you've wanted for the sake of the kingdom. That's the whole point, after all, of his giving them to you. Let's move lastly to your home. Spoken of your marriage your children, and now your home. And I realize I have not left myself much time to speak of this. We are perpetually inclined to think of our homes as our refuge. And they do indeed exist in that way. But I'm simply highlighting to you this morning that they also serve a higher end. They serve to advance the kingdom of God. You're all aware, I'm quite sure, that your home is to be a shelter from worldly influence. Have you thought of your home as the means of influencing the world? Person by person? Family by family? Have you realized your home's great power for good is not only in what it keeps out, but also who it takes in? I do believe that particularly the ladies of the church have had exhortations to them on this account in recent days. Our sister Jamie, for example, gave moving testimony to our ladies of the power of a godly home, the life of a young Christian. She was speaking of herself. The biblical word you're aware, you've heard teaching on this from this pulpit, for this kind of perspective is the word hospitality. And I simply want to remind you that those most urgent calls to show hospitality that we encounter in the Scripture are in those days of kingdom expansion, explosive kingdom expansion. We won't take the time. But I remind you, Jesus sending out the 70 disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And He says, you go to homes and you stay. Don't move around. You stay in those homes. And you say as you go to the home, peace be unto this home. Paul, in his letters, is making arrangements, it seems, for his fellow companions and for himself. And it involves staying in homes. Phoebe, thank you for taking her in. Thank you for taking me in, Philemon. When I come, John does the same thing in his third epistle, commending the church for their part in giving shelter to missionaries. The writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, says quite memorably, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels 
unawares. You get the sense that the homes are not mere personal refuges in the time of the church's expansion. They're veritable concourses of the kingdom. This is the place where the traffic and business of the kingdom is taking place in the early church. And by the way, it isn't the homes only of married or married with children. Lydia stands as an example of one of those homes that became a concourse of the kingdom. Many of you have that kind of ministry. Traffic in your home is heavy. Business is brisk. The kingdom is advancing. Others of you, perhaps in quieter ways that, isn't, that are not as well known to the rest of us, your homes are being used for the purpose of the kingdom. Some of you might be forced to admit that the only one who benefits from your home is you. Your right to prize your home is one of God's great gifts. You're wrong to think that he gave it to you only for your own personal enjoyment. Your home is a means to the advancement of the kingdom. I reflected this week on how many homes I was dependent upon as I pursued my track towards gospel ministry. In Greenville, South Carolina, Lewis and Melissa Young. In Fort Lauderdale, Florida, John and June Cranfield. In Long Island, New York, Ralph and Edith Spiller. I just give testimony to the generosity of these families who enabled a a seminarian to come out of seminary without debt and prepare to take his first call. I'd love for all of us to know that we're on someone's list like that. Let me bring my words to you this morning to a close. I have spent the first 10 or 12 years of my ministry making much of these three things to you. The pursuit of godly marriages, godly children, godly homes, That's a desperately needy thing in our day. I do not intend to stop. These are the fundamental realities of what we call the covenant, aren't they? Marriages are covenant realities. Our children are covenant children. Our homes are covenant homes. And when we promote these and enjoy these things as a church, we're enjoying what I've called another time covenant consciousness. And that is a wonderful thing. But here's something that I want to be clearer about in the next 10 or 12 years of my ministry. These things are not ends in themselves. They're means to a greater end. I'm calling that kingdom consciousness. Covenant consciousness without kingdom consciousness. Do you know what that could mean? It could mean, brothers and sisters, a highly spiritualized form of selfishness. I got my good marriage. I got my good kids. I got my godly home. Highly spiritualized sense of selfishness. As if our greatest aim in life was to have good marriages, good children, good homes. For all of our focus on our families as good covenantal Christians... 
we must not forget our families, like everything else, serve the kingdom. I'll close with our Lord's words that I have left unexegeted, just lying there in all their provocative form. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.